Welcome to the December 30th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. On today's podcast, we'll review a research article that provides the first description of a targeted gene insertion approach to correct the genetic mutation underlying X-Men disease. Next, we'll cover results of a Phase two study that provides proof of principle that the JAK-STAT pathway is a promising target for the treatment of peripheral T-cell lymphomas. We'll close with a study providing precise and up-to-date estimates on the incidence of intracranial hemorrhage in patients with hemophilia that could have important implications for preventive strategies. The first research article is entitled, CRISPR-Targeted MAGT1 Insertion Restores X-Men Patient Hematopoietic Stem Cells and Lymphocytes. The first author is Julie Brolt of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. In this article, Brolt and co-authors describe a new strategy for gene editing of T-cells and HSPCs that could translate into a novel cellular therapy approach for patients with this immunodeficiency syndrome. In contrast to the comic book superheroes, patients with X-Men disease suffer from a combination of immune defects that result in substantial morbidity and early mortality. That's spelled X-M-E-N, with X for X-linked, M for the magnesium transporter 1 gene, or MAGT1, E for Epstein-Barr virus, and N for N-linked glycosylation defect. The syndrome is caused by mutations in MAGT1 inherited in an X-linked recessive pattern. Affected patients have CD4 T-cell lymphopenia and are susceptible to EBV infections. Defects in the magnesium transporter encoded by MAGT1 leads to decreased expression of the NKG2D receptor on CD8-positive T and natural killer cells. The loss of NKG2D impairs cytotoxic antiviral responses and puts patients at increased risk of EBV-driven lymphoma and lymphoproliferative disease. There are currently few treatment options for patients with X-Men disease. Magnesium supplementation seems safe and increases NKG2D expression. However, this approach does not prevent long-term consequences of the disease. Hematopoietic cell transplantation is considered potentially curative, but associated with high mortality rates. In the present research article, Brolt and co-authors describe a novel gene editing technique that restores magnesium transporter expression and NKG2D expression in human CD8-positive T-cells and NK cells. The technique involves use of CRISPR-Cas9 to induce a double-strand DNA break in the first coding exon of the MAGT1 gene in human peripheral blood CD34-positive hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, or HSPCs. This is followed by insertion of a corrective MAGT1C DNA via homologous recombination using a repair template delivered by an adeno-associated virus, or AAV, construct. The researchers also employed a few important enhancements to overcome limitations of gene-editing approaches. The first was to improve the efficiency of the gene-editing process. Homology-directed repair of the Cas9-induced double-strand break is needed to incorporate the donor sequence. However, 
this competes with non-homologous end-joining, which is rapid and dominant. A protein called 53-BP1 binds to double-strand break sites and promotes non-homologous end-joining. So, the researchers transiently expressed an inhibitor of 53-BP1, which effectively skewed repair to homology-directed repair, increasing target insertion rates from 31% to 50%. A second key enhancement was geared toward overcoming low engraftment rates of edited HSPCs, which has been a major problem in the field. Brolt and colleagues discovered that the AAV vector carrying the repair template activates the DNA damage response in HSPCs, which decreases cell viability. To suppress the DNA damage response, the investigators transiently expressed a humanized genetic suppressor element to inhibit TP53 activation during the gene editing process. Using this approach, they achieved robust engraftment of edited X-Men HSPCs when transplanted into immunodeficient mice. Targeted insertion rates were maintained at more than 60% in the transplanted cells, with HSPC cell viability that was significantly improved. Importantly, NKG2D expression was restored in the edited X-Men NK and CD8-positive T-cells harvested from transplanted mice. Finally, the authors showed that this optimized approach could also be used to edit X-Men T lymphocytes collected by apheresis to restore NKG2D expression as well as improve T lymphocyte growth and survival. In an accompanying commentary, Troy Torgerson of the Allen Institute for Immunology in Seattle said these exciting new data demonstrate a novel gene editing technique that may be used to restore function of CD8-positive T-cells and NK cells in patients with X-Men disease. This achievement potentially offers a two-pronged therapeutic approach. X-Men patients with acute infections might benefit from corrected T-cells, whereas engraftment of gene-edited HSPCs could allow for a more permanent correction. He said the gene editing technique is clever in its placement of the spliced cDNA near the initiation codon. This means the gene therapy would be applicable to virtually every X-Men patient, regardless of where the mutation is located in the gene. He also noted that the enhancements, including skewing repair towards homology-directed repair and use of a humanized genetic suppressor element to limit the DNA damage response during gene editing, increase the odds of therapeutic success. The results suggest a viable opportunity for cure, which may prove, according to Torgerson, that fixing the mutations is what actually gives X-Men their superpowers. The next article is entitled, Phase 2 Biomarker-Driven Study of Ruxolitinib demonstrates effectiveness of JAKSTAT targeting in T-cell lymphomas by Allison J. Moskowitz of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and co-authors. They report that ruxolitinib has clinical efficacy across a range of T-cell lymphoma subtypes. There is a substantial unmet need for new therapies for patients with peripheral T-cell lymphomas and non-mycosis fungoides cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. Initial therapy yields low cure rates, and options for relapsed or refractory disease remain quite limited in this broad and heterogeneous group of patients. An exception is brentuximab vidotin, the anti-CD30 antibody drug conjugate, 
which has significantly improved outcomes in CD30-positive peripheral T-cell lymphomas. However, additional biomarker-driven strategies are needed for all of the other T-cell lymphomas. One potential therapeutic target is the JAK-STAT pathway, which is activated in many T-cell lymphomas. Activating JAK or STAT mutations are observed in 40% of T-cell large granular lymphomas and 76% of T-cell pro-lymphocytic leukemias. Preclinical data suggests that T-cell lymphomas are sensitive to the JAK1 and 2 inhibitor, ruxolitinib. Moskowitz and colleagues therefore sought to study the efficacy of ruxolitinib in patients with relapsed or refractory T-cell lymphomas. They hypothesized that T-cell lymphomas exhibiting JAK-STAT activation would be most likely to respond to JAK inhibitor treatment. The investigators conducted a multicenter phase 2 study, including patients with peripheral T-cell lymphoma or mycosis fungoides. Eligible patients had previously treated peripheral T or NK cell lymphoma or cutaneous T-cell lymphoma of stage 1B or greater. Patients with previously untreated T-cell pro-lymphocytic leukemias were allowed if first-line treatment with alemtuzumab was not feasible. All patients received oral ruxolitinib 20 mg twice daily on 28-day cycles. The primary endpoint was the clinical benefit rate, or the combination of complete response, partial response, or stable disease lasting six months or more. 53 patients were enrolled between January 2017 and July 2019, including 45 with peripheral T-cell lymphomas and 7 with mycosis fungoides. 51% of patients were male, the median age was 62, and the median number of prior treatments was 3. Patients were divided into three biomarker-defined cohorts. The first, which included 21 patients, had tumors with known activating JAK or STAT mutations. The second included 15 patients with no such mutations, but evidence of JAK-STAT activation, defined as phosphorylated STAT activation by immunohistochemistry in at least 30% of cells. The third cohort included 17 patients not meeting those criteria or who had insufficient tissue to assess. For 52 evaluable patients, the clinical benefit rate was 35%. That included three complete responses, or 6%, 10 partial responses, or 19%, and five patients with stable disease for at least six months, or 10%. Among the 45 patients with peripheral T-cell lymphomas, the clinical benefit rate was 53% in the patients with JAK-STAT mutations, 45% in those with JAK-STAT activation, and just 13% for patients with neither of the above or insufficient tissue to assess. Among seven patients with mycosis fungoides, only one had prolonged stable disease for a 14% clinical benefit rate. Median time to best response was 6.3 months, and median duration of response was 8.4 months. Eight patients achieved responses lasting at least one year. Among those exceptional responders, were four out of the five patients in the study with T-cell large granular lymphocyte leukemia. Two of those responders had STAT2 mutations, while the other two responders had no JAK-STAT mutations or activation. Investigators also used multiplex immunofluorescence to assess expression of phosphorylated S6, a marker of PI3 kinase, or MAP kinase activation. 
expression of phosphorylated S6 in less than 25% of tumor cells was significantly associated with response to ruxolitinib. Adverse events were primarily cytopenias, consistent with ruxolitinib's known side effect profile. In a commentary, Lauren Pinter-Brown of the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of California, Irvine, said that the study by Moskowitz and colleagues is proof of principle that the JAK-STAT pathway is clinically relevant in the treatment of T-cell lymphomas. It was particularly encouraging to see responses in patients with T-cell pro-lymphocytic leukemia, an aggressive entity with few treatment options, and T-cell large granular lymphocyte leukemia, an indolent subtype for which treatment benefits about half of patients. Pinter-Brown said she looks forward to studies that would specifically address these two neglected subtypes of peripheral T-cell lymphoma by looking at JAK inhibitors in combination with other agents. The finding that linked low expression of phosphorylated S6 to ruxolitinib response suggests that PI3K mTOR signaling may confer intrinsic resistance to ruxolitinib. That provides a rationale for combining JAK and PI3K targeting therapy, as will be done in an upcoming study of ruxolitinib plus duvalisib in patients with T-cell lymphomas. The final article is entitled Incidence and Mortality Rates of Intracranial Hemorrhage in Hemophilia, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. The lead author is Anna Floor-Schwagemacher of the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. In this study, Schwagemacher and colleagues confirmed that intracranial hemorrhage, or ICH, is an important problem that occurs in hemophilia patients of all ages, with an incidence that is strikingly high in the first few years of life. The hallmark clinical presentation of hemophilia includes joint and muscle bleeds. However, ICH is the most severe complication of hemophilia and can lead to permanent neurological damage and death. Estimates of ICH incidence and mortality vary widely from study to study due to small sample sizes and differences between the patient populations that are assessed. A 2008 literature review pegged the lifetime incidence of ICH at 3% to 10%, but those numbers were based mainly on patients treated for bleeding on demand. Mortality due to intracranial bleeding is also an important problem across the spectrum of hemophilia patients, for which more precise estimates are needed. In an international cohort study of non-severe hemophilia patients, treated with factor VIII concentrates between 1980 and 2010, the risk of dying from intracranial bleeding was increased 3.5-fold in comparison to the general population. There remain few pooled and precise estimates of ICH incidence and mortality among patients with hemophilia. Because of this, Zhvagamakar and colleagues reasoned that a comprehensive and up-to-date systematic review and meta-analysis would provide useful data on ICH burden that could guide future management and prevention efforts. Their study aims to provide pooled ICH incidence and mortality data in three different groups of hemophilia patients. One group included persons of all ages. The second included children and young adults under 25 years of age, while the third included neonates. The researchers limited their analysis to cross-sectional, longitudinal observational, 
and randomized studies with at least 50 patients in the peer-reviewed literature. By searching PubMed and Embase, they found 45 relevant studies spanning six decades with populations from 43 countries across six continents. There were 23 studies in lifetime populations, 16 in children and young adults, and 12 in neonates. The pooled ICH incidence rate in the lifetime group was 2.3 per 1,000 person years, while in children and young adults, it was 7.4 per 1,000 person years. Based on those data, the estimated ICH occurrence is 0.23% for lifetime populations and 0.74% for children and young adults. For neonates, the pooled ICH cumulative incidence was 2.1% per 100 live births. That means that about 2% of newborns with hemophilia would be expected to experience an ICH in the neonatal period, according to the investigators. The pooled ICH mortality rate for the lifetime group was 0.8 per 1,000 person years. The case fatality rate was 0% to 29% across studies, with 4% to 36% of reported deaths related to intracranial bleeding. Among children and young adults, the pooled ICH mortality rate was 0.5 per 1,000 person years. Though when restricted to studies that did not include neonatal ICH, the pooled ICH mortality rate was 0.2 per 1,000 person years. For neonates, the pooled ICH cumulative mortality was 0.2 per 100 live births, as calculated over three studies. In a commentary that also appears in Blood, Guy Young of Children's Hospital Los Angeles said this exceptionally well-done study puts to rest any questions regarding the high incidence of ICH among individuals with hemophilia. While hemophilia is classified as a, quote, benign hematologic disorder, Young said hematologists should never consider it as anything less than a life-threatening disease that, short of death, can result in debilitating and permanent sequelae. The meta-analysis by Zhvagamacher et al. emphasizes that ICH is largely a pediatric problem that mostly occurs in the first few years of life. Young noted that the National Hemophilia Foundation's Medical and Scientific Advisory Council recently recommended that hematologists consider emicizumab prophylaxis in neonates due to the high risk of ICH. The present study strengthens the importance of this recommendation, according to Young who said he would urge every hematologist caring for infants with hemophilia to use this information in discussions with parents. He concluded his commentary by saying, quote, The decision to start any form of prophylaxis, and especially emicizumab in infants, must be made on a case-by-case basis. However, that decision should be an informed one. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.